Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. An encampment behind Hamilton City Hall remains a big concern. What do you think of the redesigned HSR network? Art Crawl takes a step up. Good news from the Conference Board of Canada. Chinese interference hitting closer to home, and the Leafs have managed to stay alive in their playoff series. The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. There isn't a neat and tidy time frame to a housing first approach because they're working uh, with individuals that all have very unique needs. And so they look at how to best engage and sometimes that engagement takes a bit of time. That is Hamilton City Manager Jeanette Smith reflecting on the encampment behind City Hall, which as you can imagine has generated a lot of discussion in council chambers, in the community, on this show. Good morning, Hamilton on 900 CHML as we welcome you back here. At last check, there are more than 30 people living in tents behind City Hall near Whitehern House, and uh, voluntary compliance notices were given to them, uh, well, one week ago today. And we know that this is just one of many encampments in the community. So what is happening? What is the go-forward plan? Marcy McKelvin is the program director of HandSmarts, the Hamilton Social Medicine Response Team, and joins us on GMH. Marcy, good morning. How are you today? I'm great yourself. I'm good. What's the latest information that you have at what's happening uh, behind City Hall? Um, We haven't got direct updated information from the city. I've talked to people at the encampment at City Hall and they said they're able to stay. Um, They were given the voluntary compliance order a week ago and a lot of people totally didn't understand what it meant and what how enforceable it was and what was going on and how they had to stay or if they had to leave. And I think like through community dialogue now they're able to stay. I'm not sure exactly what's happening. I'm going to be going down there later today. Yeah, it really sounded like a confusing uh, kind of execution of, hey, here's a here's an order to leave, but do so voluntarily. And well, everyone has just stayed there. I think I think the biggest thing to note is that there's nowhere for people to leave to. I think that's the part that's missing in all of this is that there is no housing. The city has finally been honest with the fact that they can't serve everybody. They can't house everybody. There's not even emergency shelter space for everybody, which is not housing, right? We need to remember that staying in an emergency shelter does not mean you're housed. It means you're in a place for a bit until you're not. It's really sad that we've gotten to this point. I mean, there's no, there's nowhere to go. Yeah. And, and we have this dialogue or this thought that's out in the media that people want to be homeless. There's this narrative that people want to be out there and they're just enjoying life. But in reality, if you, if you look at it, um, and from my own experience years ago, being unhoused, I haven't been unhoused in a long time for whatever reason and ability. And I, I don't take for granted that it could happen to me at any point, right? It can happen to any of us at any point. There's, no necessary protection and there's no housing and rent is astronomical but we think people want to be outside when really there's no space inside so the alternative is what and we don't share that part right we share that people are reluctant to go to shelter we change dialogue saying people don't want people in shelter or or any of that stuff but the reality is we put more money as like a municipality as a province as a country we put more money into policing and overseeing these things right like the there's encampment police officers now right like there's picture of them in the paper that we're just gonna standing in a parking lot and and from from my perspective like if that money that we invested um the money that was approved for the enforcement of encampments and we can call it what we want we can call it that housing street outreach team we can call it anything really right but 
it's a housing street outreach team with no housing attached to it because there's no housing available. And it's another way of policing people instead of investing that money in creating housing. Marcy McKelvin is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Marcy is the program director of HandSmart. And you're right, these people don't want to uh, be forced out of where they are. They also don't want to be homeless. The fact of the matter is that they also don't want to be moved around. I mean, if they're, quote-unquote, evicted from this area behind City Hall, there's there's still no housing to go to. There's no shelter space to go visit for a night or two or whatever. They're just going to end up setting up shop somewhere else. Yeah. If you look at the past few years um, and where what's happened in Hamilton the past few years, like we've we've gone through like different stages. There was a protocol a few years ago, the injunction protocol was tossed out now they're creating another protocol that's coming up next week and and people have just been bounced around from place to place i know at one point there was a group that was moved from one side of a road to across the street and then back across the street like we're not that doesn't help anyone if and i've said this before in in articles and in discussions if we have nothing to offer people and we're not able to meet their goals and needs let them meet their own and just leave them alone to like do that until we have something to offer. When it comes to this new protocol, we got ninety seconds to chew on this. Yeah. <laughs> what 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 is the must have in this? I think okay. I think the three things are space, autonomy, and ability. Right. So like allow people to be in a space without having to like engage in programming or connections that don't lead to where the person wants to be. Um, that doesn't mean a free for all for everything. It means having space to exist and sort out your own goals, having communication with service agencies and not just hold it within the city, talk to community partners, talk to the people that know the people outside and have relationships with them instead of just assuming whatever you want, whatever gets assumed. Right. And I think too, is like one thing that's missing and is always missed is access to washrooms and hygiene. And I'm going to leave it with this um, for the people that may or may not know. There is no place for people. There's one drop in one or two drop in centers for women to shower during the day that are not staying in shelter. And there is none for men. Well, uh, that's that's a start. And there's many other things. I think the start is allowing people to be like clean and take care of their personal needs. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, And more heavy lifting needs to be done. A lot of it has to go with what the city is saying that, you know, they need a housing first approach. Well, let's see this housing. Let's get on it. Marcy, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you for your time today and best of luck helping these individuals in this encampment. Thank you. Marcy McKelvey and program director HamSmart, the Hamilton Social Medicine Response Team. You know, officials in the city are saying there's escalating health and safety concerns. Absolutely. You know, there's there's open fires being set. There, there could be violence. There could be drug use. Uh, there's obviously, uh, you know, various factors that go along uh, in, in, within this story. But there's got to be a better answer than just moving these people around. Uh, we're going to continue to follow the story here on Good Morning Hamilton. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The city of Hamilton is getting ready for the next phase of what's going to be a, well, a big change for many in this community. That is the redesign of the HSR network. Later on this morning, the city is going to host its first public open house at the David Braley Health Sciences Center on Main Street West. And here to talk about it is Jason Vanderheide. He's the manager of transit planning and infrastructure with the city of Hamilton. Jason, good morning. Good morning, Rick. How are you doing? I'm good. So last month, the public got its first glimpse of what the re-envisioned HSR route map could look like. Uh, What's going to happen today and uh, going forward? 
Sure. Today is the uh, the kickoff event for um, consultation, essentially. Uh, what we'll be doing is allowing um, the public to stop by, uh, engage with staff, ask questions about the proposed changes, learn more about the project, learn more about the proposed changes. Uh, and then over the, the course of the next few months, between now and September, we'll have uh, additional consultation uh, opportunities, uh, as well as um, our website that's live for people to provide feedback on what we put together. Uh, we essentially had a, a project called Reenvision that was launched in 2019 uh, that really capitalized on the voice of customer with over 13,000 engagements to understand really what's important to Hamiltonians in terms of transit. Uh, and we've taken that feedback and we've applied it to a lot of planning principles and uh, policy objectives in the city of Hamilton. And we've come up with this proposed network uh, for the future uh, with a time horizon around when LRT will be operational. For those who can't attend today or really any of the public information sessions and feedback sessions that are going to be held over the next uh, several months, they can't go online as well. And that website is engage.hamilton.ca forward slash HSR redesigned network. Um, when it comes to today and, and, and the go forward public input sessions, what do you expect to hear? Uh, we really want to get uh, a confirmation that uh, what was told to us back in 2019, uh, that we've really hit the mark on it. Uh, we want to get feedback on where we might have missed the mark. Um, but really, it's about uh, educating um, educating folks and having the conversations around what those changes might mean to individuals, uh, but more importantly, to the community itself. And um, transit is a key component uh, in terms of city building. Uh, and, and this design proposal is really, you know, not just about tomorrow and, you know, not not about 2030, but really setting the stage for um, what we expect in terms of population growth in, in the decades to come, right up until, I think, 2051, uh, City of Hamilton's projected to have over 800,000 uh, residents. Um, so it's really about setting the stage for how we grow transit um, for the generations ahead of us. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Jason Vanderheide, Manager of Transit Planning and Infrastructure with the City, city of Hamilton. We're talking about the uh, redesigned HSR network, and an open house is going to be held later on this morning at the David Braley Health Sciences Center on Main Street West and, and stretching into the afternoon. When when this revamped transit map was first revealed, did you get a general sense of how transit riders are digesting this? Yeah, the initial uh, intake of feedback was um, generally very positive. Um, I think that uh, those who use transit or potentially could be using transit in the city have been clamoring for some change. We have a network that is uh, it's quite old. We're actually coming up on our 150th year of operations in 2024. Uh, and in most of our history, we've been a very downtown-centric um, hub-and-spoke model. Uh, and in our new design, we've deviated from that and recognizing that the city has grown and people's travel tra patterns have changed significantly uh, over, you know, the 150 uh, years or so that uh, that we've been in existence. And so uh, generally positive feedback on on the changes that uh, that we've proposed. So when a seasoned or, or veteran HSR rider, so to speak, looks at this revamped map, are, are there big differences? What do, what would be the biggest difference uh, between the current map we have and, and the new one that we're going to get? Yeah, I would say the two biggest differences is the the premise of um, building our network around uh, strategically placed hubs. 
Uh, and so the current network being downtown centric really has, you know, one major hub in the, in the downtown area around King and James, and then all service emanates from there out to all parts of the city. Uh, in this new map, uh, we have eight primary hubs, four across the mountain, four in the lower city. And then we have secondary hubs or gateways, which are more on the periphery and where people can access uh, from rural areas or, or maybe some of the, uh, um, uh, the suburban areas. Um, what that hub-based model really does effectively with the second component, which is an expanded rapid transit network, is allows uh, transit users to um, travel across the city uh, from hub to hub or from hub to multiple hubs um, without having to transfer, uh, but um, at a at a quicker pace, um, something that's a little bit more competitive with uh, car travel than local transit is, um, and uh, really allowing people to to reach. Uh, more destinations by transit and also have greater access to transit. Um, we have some communities that have been underserved uh, over the uh, over the course of the last few decades. And this is really about extending our service out into all communities and, and having uh, an equitable access to service, regardless of where you live or where you, where you want to take transit. I can hear all the listeners in, in my, in my ears are ringing because they're probably wondering, you know, when does this take effect? When will these changes, when will this redesigned HSR network officially launch? Yeah. So it's not going to be overnight. It's, it's going to take several years to build this out. Um, transit, good transit that's planned and implemented uh, takes quite a, quite a few years to, uh, to be put in place. Uh, some of that's around logistical challenges. We uh, we are operating out of one transit facility right now up on the mountain. Uh, we're a few years away from completing our second transit facility in the lower city. And so that provides more capacity for um, a larger fleet. Um, some of it has to do with investment um, in order to you know, accomplish the objectives of having a hub-based model. Um, there's some infrastructure investment that needs to take place. Uh, and then there's investment around um, service hours as well. And so we've had a 10-year local transit strategy that's been ongoing since 2015. And that's been a, a really good start in engaging investment in our community it, it, with respect to transit. Um, but there needs to be more investment to get us towards um, completion of this. And as I stated uh, early on, uh, the intention of what um, has been shown in early April and will be shown through these events is really around being um, fully implemented at the time that uh, LRT becomes operational. Um, and, and that's really, in, uh, I guess, indicative of where this has all come from. And, and that's something that started back in 2013 and a little bit before that when LRT was being planned uh, and being what was called rapid ready. And so uh, part of rapid ready was reconfiguring the network around um, rapid transit corridors. Uh, and, and that all um, lends to um, good city building policy and, and uh, the growth projections within the area. Exciting times, that is for sure. Jason, thanks for spending some time with us today and uh, good luck with today's uh, first open house. Thanks very much for the opportunity, and uh, everybody come out uh, uh, to today's event. You can check it out 1 to 6 p.m. today at the David Riley Health Sciences Center on Main Street. That is across from City Hall. You can also go online and express your views on the redesigned HSR network, engage.hamilton.ca. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, a portion of James Street North is going to be closing to vehicles three times this summer for monthly art crawl events. City Council the other day approving the closures as a pilot project between Cannon and Barton Streets. It'll start at 6 p.m. on the second Friday of the month in June, July, and August. 
I think this is a great example of giving the city back to people, reprioritizing uh, people versus automobiles. And I'm really looking forward to being there when the roads are closed and to getting the information back from the pilot study and uh, supporting things like this in the future. One of the supporters there is Ancaster Councillor Craig Kassar. I think a lot of people are happy about this. There might be some who think, oh, we're, what? we're closing down the street. What's going on? Mary Luciani is the owner of the Pale Blue Dot Shop and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Mary, good morning. How are you? Hey, I'm great. Thank you, Rick. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Hey, I don't know. We, we really appreciate you waking up with us here on GMH. What do you think of this uh, pilot project? I couldn't be more excited. I'm so so happy that this is happening. I think it's going to be so great for the for the art crawl and just for community in general. Now, the the, the uh, uh, James is going to be closed from Cannon to Barton starting at 6 on the second Friday of the month in June, July, August. Is it going to be closed for the entire weekend? Um, I would imagine it's just for the evening. Okay. I haven't heard any details past that. So what do you expect to happen on these evenings? Oh my gosh. Art crawl, people, the city just comes alive and um, I, so I was, I've been frequenting our cross for 13 years. I used to sell my paintings and anyone who, who attends knows that the energy on the street is just alive and it really made me fall in love with the street. That's why I wanted to open the pale blue dot on James street North because of the culture of our crawl. Um, you know, it really breathes so much life into our city and, um, anyone who attends can, uh, we'll find that people are just so friendly, eager to chat and celebrate our community's um, diversity and and talent. It's really, it's such a great coming together event. The Pale Blue Dot is located at 240 James Street North. Your hours of operation are 11 in the morning to 5 p.m. Knowing that the street is going to close at 6, do you plan to stay open during the evening, during these art crawl events? Oh, yeah. We will definitely be <laughs> open. Um, we like to say we're open until late. Uh, we never really know what time, but we just we stay open until the crowds stop coming. So it's a nice, it's a fun, fun night. How many people could potentially come through your door when they're shutting the whole street down three times this summer? Oh my gosh, I don't, I don't, I can't even really imagine. It's going to be like super crawl in terms of being closed down, uh, which is our favorite day of the year. Um, so I'm looking forward to more of that. Maybe hundred people. Maybe two. I don't know. <laughs> and how would that compare on a regular day? Um, like just blows it out of the water. Yeah, blows it out of the water. Incomparable. Mar- Mary Luciani is the owner of uh, the Pale Blue Dot Shop. You can check them out online at thepaleblue.shop.com or visit them at 240 James Street North here in Hamilton. Uh, is there any downside? You know, I can imagine maybe parking around the area might be a little tricky. So there's a ton of parking in the parking garage just up the street. It's a short walk. There's lots of small parking lots around. Um, so it may take a few minutes, but highly worth it. It's such a destination, and anyone in the area, I really encourage to come join us. Now, this is a pilot project, so there's a potential this could become a permanent thing. What do you think has to happen to make this permanent? Um, I, don't, I guess people can just express how much they love the idea, if they love it, if they enjoy it. Definitely express it, share with your friends, and other than that, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I'm excited. I hope it does happen. I can imagine, yeah, a lot of people who usually attend these art crawl events and now knowing that the street is going to be closed, I think it's going to bring a lot more people down there. And I a think lot, so, yeah. And a lot more people. A lot more comfortable. In, yeah. And, yeah. A lot more people into your shop and others. Tell us about the Pale Blue Dot. Oh, okay. 
Uh, so we're an earth-friendly general store, so we focus on um, providing our community with earth-friendly, natural, safe, responsibly made, ethically sourced um, products for everyday use. So everything from bath and body to kitchen wares, um, our own linen clothing line, and then in our lower level, we sell antiques and vintage items. Wow. What's the response been like uh, from the community? What's that? What's the response been like from the community to to your shop? Oh, it's been so great. And, you know, it, it feels like its own little community hub where people come and they'll see friends and it's just great. People come from Toronto. We've had people come from Buffalo. Uh, it's been six, almost six years now, this November, and it's just been a dream. We are uh, three years into the pandemic, and uh, uh, you know the the World Health Organization, you know, declared that it was over in terms of an international uh, virus of concern. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- three years after we initially all were wondering what the heck's going to happen with this world, how are you guys doing? How have you adjusted over these past few years? It's definitely been an adjustment. Um, <laughs> You know, we're starting to see people come back. It definitely has not bounced back yet um, when we're looking forward to the warmer weather for that and art crawls specifically. Um, But, yeah, it's been a struggle. Um, But our community has really pulled through. And, you know, events like this and having the city kind of back us in um, strengthening our community events on James North has been really, really helpful. This is great news. Yeah, I can see this as being a big plus, not only for the Pale Blue Dot Shop, but all the other uh, shops and stores and uh, great things to see during these art crawl events in June, July, and August. Mary, really appreciate your time this morning. Best yeah. of luck going forward. Thank you so much, Rick. Thank you so much for having me. It's been Have a good great. One. Mary Luciani, the owner of The Pale Blue Dots. You can check them out online, thepaleblue.shop.com, or go visit them, 240 James Street North, one of just many businesses on the Strip between Cannon and Barton that come the second Friday of every month in June, July, August, starting at 6 p.m. It's it's going to be art crawl mode. It's going to be party mode on James Street North. It's That should be a lot of fun. Those businesses are really going to benefit from this program. And I am sure there are other businesses on other streets to say, hey, what about us? Can we do this too? Let's bring it to our neighborhood. Uh, we'll see if this uh, spreads like... Uh, wildfire. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Conference Board of Canada has shared its outlook for Hamilton's economy for the rest of 2023, and it appears things are looking up for our city. Oh, that's nice. Victor Changeman is an economist with the Conference Board of Canada and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Victor, good morning. How are you? Hi, thank you for having me. What factors does the conference board look at to make this determination that Hamilton's economy looks to be on the upswing? Well, I mean, I I would sort of, I guess, as an economist, not necessarily call it an upswing. I mean, this year we, we were, we're not, we're going to avoid sort of a major recession, I would say, but that's not to say that we're not going to enter a slower period of, of, of growth, um, especially when you look at the two previous years where rebounded from the um, the pandemic so we are sort of entering a slower period but you know we look at I mean Hamilton is also connected to all the surrounding regions um, when you look at the trends they're facing we're seeing this trends across Ontario across the country so a lot of the trends that Hamilton is facing is also impacted across the country so those are what we sort of look at to to determine what's happening in Hamilton. So when we're looking at this outlook, it appears, according to the Conference Board of Canada, that Hamilton's economy is going to outpace that of Ontario's. Yes, slightly. Um, you know, it's it's not like it's uh, 
it's, I think we're supposed to, real GDP growth is supposed to grow at 0.8%. And that's compared to 43 in 2021 and 2.1 last year. So uh, we're below 1%. Um, this isn't a, an economy that's, you know, booming. It's slightly outpaced um, Ontario, but um, once again, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a slowdown. But good news in the sense that we don't see a, a major downturn occurring um, this year. And why is that? Where are we seeing this marginal growth that is preventing this downturn? Well, there's a there's a number of factors. Um, one thing, as you can see, employment is still, you know, growing. It, obviously, it's slowing down, but people can still find jobs, and wages are still increasing. And there still is um, a lot of accumulated savings people have from from earlier on in the pandemic. So. When you put these things together from wage growth, um, there are still some opportunities you know, for jobs. Obviously, this is slowing down, but um, we're not seeing employers really letting go of all these, all these people. And that's actually a feature of the labor market, I think, where you know, employers are more hesitant to let go just because of the very tight labor market. They'd rather keep someone on longer, maybe reduce hours or find ways to use them um, rather than really letting go of people. So the, the labor market really is driving this this sort of slower period rather than a major downturn. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Victor Teachman, economist at the Conference Board of Canada. It is out with an outlook for Hamilton's economy that shows it's going to be slightly better than uh, uh, what Ontario is pacing in terms of economic growth. We have each and every year in Hamilton, a billion dollars or more worth of building permits. Obviously, we need, and every other community in this province needs, more homes. Does that mean the construction sector is going to lead the way? Yeah, yeah. So it, it does look good for construction. I mean, there's a bit of a dip maybe this year just because, as I've been talking about, a bit of a, a downturn, uh, or slowdown, I should say. And um, with higher interest rates, um, you know, it's putting a bit of a damper on the housing market. But with a large population, you know, increase that's coming, especially immigration, um, you know, Hamilton also being a hub for immigration, very close to Toronto. Um, we do expect there to be continue to be more demand for housing. Construction will continue for the next few years. I think we have it above nearly 3% for the next um, four, three years. And so, and, then, and there's a lot of non-residential projects as well, as we know, with the light rail transit and lots of things going on. So, yeah, it does look good for, for the construction sector. In a remaining minute, you mentioned the word downturn a couple of times. Does that necessarily mean recession or close to it? Yeah, we're not. So we're not. Um, I mean, sometimes we get too focused on the word recession and, and downturn. I think it just makes it easier. But I mean, in general, it's a, it's a period of slower growth. We're not saying there's going to be a major recession or a major downturn. It's just a period of slower growth. You know, things that look are sort of taking a step back after two years of, of solid growth. And the job market still looks pretty good. Going into next year, we definitely will see a, a pickup and a bit more of a rebound. All right. Well, I, uh, I'm going to call it a good news story. I don't know about you, Victor, but that's, yeah, what, that's what I'm I, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Victor, thanks for the time today. Enjoy your day. Yeah, thank you very much. Victor Teachman is an economist with the Conference Board of Canada and uh, sharing news that Hamilton's economy will slightly outpace that of Ontario's. But hey, at least that is a positive. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Foreign interference by China, the hottest topic by far on Parliament Hill, where some officials have allegedly been influenced in the last two federal elections. Politicians like Han Dong and Michael Chong are in this tornado. 
as is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his government, as well as, well, CSIS and our, and our country's national security reps. The question is, is China's interference scheme succeeding? Is it further dividing us and making us question our elections? David Salvo is a senior fellow and managing director of the Alliance for Securing Democracy and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. David, good morning. How are you? I'm well, Rick. How are you? I'm good. You spoke to the Procedure and House Affairs Committee on this issue the other day, obviously studying foreign interference. Uh, What was your message to them? Well, my message to them was that what's happening in Canada, first of all, it's not unique. What China and Russia and other authoritarian governments um, are doing, using tactics to try to you know, amplify divisions between Canadians to uh, cause Canadians to distrust the results of their elections. That's not new. That's been happening in democracies around the world for several years now. Um, So one, it's not unique, but two, really, this ought to be an issue that brings liberals and conservatives together to try to address vulnerabilities in the Canadian electoral system and in Canadian democratic institutions to prevent this from happening again, because it's clear that increasingly, China is trying not just to target lawmakers, although that happens too in specific writings during election season, but it's also a purveyor of disinformation, trying to amplify divisions between Canadians on topics of heightened political sensitivity. It's trying to move money into Canada through proxy companies and and, um, shell companies to try to influence Canadian politics. So it's a much more insidious threat than just even what happens in one specific Um, electoral writing. I understand that the Alliance for Securing Democracy has tracked uh, China and Russia and its attempts to influence democracies for like 23 years. What have you found over those two decades plus? Well, we just have a representative sample of these types of incidents across the transatlantic community. So the United States, Canada, and, and, and all the members of, of the European Union and NATO. And we found, you know, well over 400 incidents of this type of uh, interference. And again, not just during election seasons, although obviously elections are sort of a prime target for these authoritarian regimes in democracies. And there are you know, d- different types of tactics that they use. They use cyber operations to hack and leak uh, information that might damage a candidate during uh, election season. We've seen this in the United States, of course. We've seen this in France and other countries. Um, they use money to, again, through real estate and proxies and, and shell companies to try to mask ties to Beijing and Moscow and influence politics in our countries. And they use disinformation. Those are sort of primary tools uh, of interference they use to try to uh, increase doubt and in, in, in confidence in our democracy and its ability to work. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, David Salvo, Senior Fellow and Managing Director of the Alliance for Securing Democracy. I want to ask you about uh, China uh, targeting student associations and think tanks to get them to alter their um, frame of mind, I guess. Yeah, that's I mean, it's stuff like that that really, really it really ought to bother the average, you know, American, Canadian, European. Um, the fact that there are these organizations that have um, ties, in, in the case of China, to the United Front Work Department, which is an organ of the Chinese Communist Party that really tries to cultivate um, relationships with sort of the broader community in our democracies um, to try to shape views, to try to silence debate on topics uh, at universities that are perceived as hostile to the Chinese Communist Party um, by moving money into uh, think tanks that hide their affiliations with these organizations um, in other countries. It 
you know, Canadians, Americans, Europeans, and don't understand where these, where this messaging is coming from, where the information is coming from. And that works to China's advantage. They are trying ultimately to shape public discourse, political discourse to get policies enacted and implemented that are just friendlier to Beijing. Throw in social media there, and it makes it much easier to do that as well. The, the question becomes, can this sort of interference be stopped? Well, it's it, it's a long game, right? There's no quick fix in the short term. There, there are, of course, policies and laws that can be enacted to shut off the valve of money that comes into the country. You know, for example, in Canada, um, there's still um, no registry that masks or that unmasks rather the owners of shell companies and, and other sort of proxy cutouts that allows the Chinese and the Russians to move the money, their money into Canada. That's a quick fix that really would allow more transparency, to, especially during ele- election season. But in terms of the information space and the sort of barrage of disinformation that is um, you know, funneled into our countries. And a lot of this is organic. It's happening domestically. It's not just like China and Russia cause this big information problem in our countries. But, you know, this is where questions of resilience really come in and, um, you know, building into our civic education, our public education, how to sort of understand what, you know, what sources of information you're reading and why they might have an agenda. Like that, this is all decades long work of, um, stuff that we've got to enact and it's you know it's important that like the government of canada for example is funding some of these civil society initiatives in canada i think that's important it's going to start it's got to start at the citizen level the grassroots level um or there's always going to be these openings for authoritarian regimes to exploit you're right it is definitely a long game david we'll have to leave it there thank you so much for your time this morning and uh, have a great day You too, Rick. Thank you. David Salvo, Senior Fellow and Managing Director of the Alliance for Securing Democracy, with some great insights into how foreign interference actually works and its impact. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Some kind of magic in the air last night in Florida and in Maple Leaf Square outside Scotiabank Arena and in households and bars and pubs. Across this nation, at least if you were a Leafs fan, because you needed some magic, you needed some positive mojo, you needed something to grab a hold of and say, all right, we're okay. And, well, Leafs fans got a little bit of that last night, down three games to nothing uh, to the Florida Panthers. It was must-win territory. Do or die. Literally, if the Leafs did not win last night, that was it. Their season was overall that they have accomplished in the 2022-23 NHL campaign would have been wiped out. All the goodness that was felt after the first-round playoff series, their first first-round playoff series victory in 19 years, all that would have been wiped away. And there's, there was a lot of talk heading into last night's game that if they did not win, that that would be it for guys like head coach Sheldon Keefe, perhaps general manager Kyle Dubas, maybe even some players would be traded. Mitch Marner's name being bandied about. Austin Matthews, crazily, his name being bandied about in trade rumors. William Nylander. And John Tavares, who personally I don't think his contract will allow him to be traded. Um, But the fact of the matter is, this team had to win last night. And so it was a game in which, uh, yeah, they, they had a little magic on their sticks and in the goalie pads and around the arena and all the coaching decisions seemed to work. The Leafs finally managed to get a win against the Panthers in game four and so they're not dead yet
Bunting playing it around the boards. It comes in front. They, no, they score! Willie Nylander in front of the goal. Tips it home on a strange bounce out of the corner. And the Maple Leafs draw first blood on a huge bouncing break. Crazy commotion around the front of that Panthers cage. It's a power play goal. And the Leafs have a 1-0 lead. That's the Brodsky stick and Forsling will be able to hand it back to the goaltender. Scores! Murder the shot! And it deflects in to the Leafs. Lead by two. Scores! Holy Mackinac! The Leafs have gained a two-goal lead! Just the work ethic. Um, I think we didn't uh, really give up a whole lot off the rush. We were, we we're doing well with our... Uh, neutral zone plays and uh, being smart with their puck and I thought we did a great job of our forecheck just getting pucks back and getting around the, the goal crease. Coming back, we're coming back. We got it, we got it. We'll take it to seven. In Toronto, in here. Leafs in seven, baby, let's go. O'Reilly doing a wonderful job, and he clears it the rest of the way down the ice. Ten seconds left. Barkov working back through center. Six, five, four, into the corner. Swallow it up, Morgan, he does. The game is over. And the Leafs are going to force game five on Friday. They care deeply, and... Because of that, you give that type of effort. They didn't want to go quietly, and that's what we've been talking about. We were going to leave it all out there here today. I think as a team, um, it was very special to see how hard we played tonight defensively. I think we were challenged to, to leave it all out there, and I think we, we did that. I just think it's in these in these moments, uh, guys got to play and show what they uh, what they bring to the table, and I think that as a team, we did a really good job of that tonight. And I mean. It's not going to get easier. We know we're up against a great team, and we're just going to keep digging in and playing harder and harder every every game that goes. Honestly, it all starts with one. I know only four teams have done this, but hey, they're a wild card team. We won one. We need to take another now at home. It's 4-2. Take the momentum in, game, win game six, and then game seven, you never know. I'm thinking we're going to get it. We're getting the Stanley Cup. It's game coming. Seven. Yeah, we got it in game seven. We're going to get three more, and we are going to kick their butts in game seven, period. Leafs in seven, oh, 1,000%. Look, this is the energy we needed, okay? They played different tonight, and I feel that energy, okay? It's coming our way. Leafs in seven. I'm just happy we didn't get swept. Yeah. That's that's the main thing. I believe, but I'm just happy they didn't get swept, to be honest. So glad that they finally got They just got the one that they needed. Just got to keep this energy. It's finally coming back home. We got home ice. Huge win. I think they need to keep this momentum going to game five, game six. And bring it home game seven. So you're telling me there's a chance. Yeah, I guess there is still a wee bit of a chance for the Maple Leafs. Game 5 tomorrow in Toronto. If necessary, and Leafs fans are hoping it is, Game 6 will happen Sunday in Florida. And if, if, if necessary, Game 7 in Toronto next Tuesday. Can you imagine that? Uh, it, it would be hard to believe because in the history of the NHL, 
Of the 204 teams that have faced a 3-0 deficit in a best-of-seven playoff series, 204 teams, only four of them have come back from that 3-0 hole. Most recently, 2014. The LA Kings down three games to nothing against the San Jose Sharks. And they rattle off four wins in a row. Uh, 2010, Eastern Conference semifinals. Flyers over the Bruins. Philadelphia overcoming a 3-0 series deficit, winning that seventh game. What a phenomenal series that was. 1975 Stanley Cup quarterfinals between the Islanders and the Penguins. New York coming out on top. And the first ever team to do so, rallying from a 3-0 deficit in the playoffs, happened in the Stanley Cup final. And it happened in 1942. And it happened with the Toronto Maple Leafs doing so. They were down 3-love to Detroit in the 42-cup final, won four in a row, and remain to this day the only team to do so in the Cup Final. Wow, what a story that was. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.